Hello and welcome to the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Today's guest is the remarkable Leah Garces. Leah is the president of Mercy for Animals and founder of Compassion and World Farming USA. She's an author for the forthcoming book, Grilled, Turning Adversaries into Allies in the Fight to Change the Chicken Industry, to be published by Bloomsbury in September 2019. She's an animal advocate who's partnered with some of the world's largest food companies in a mission to end factory farming. Her work has been featured in many national and international media outlets, including New York Times, Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Vice Magazine, and Chicago Tribune, among others. She's a contributing author to Huffington Post and Food Safety News. Leah serves on the advisory board of Encompass and Seattle Food Tech. She's also a mom of three wonderful children. Thank you for joining us, Leah. Thank you for having me, Robbie. It's great to hear from you again. Yes, it was. Uh, it wasn't so long ago where we met at the um, conference. The what was it? Extinction the, uh, conference. Extinction yep. conference. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really interesting time. It was. Met, met some really interesting people there, and it was quite quite fascinating to see the juxtaposition between the kind of you know animal agriculture and um, people working in animal rights and animal ethics. Yeah, I was trying to bring people together um, over the issue of factory farming and saying this wasn't just you know, an issue that causes a great amount of suffering for animals, but it's also destroying the planet. And it was talking about, it was particularly called extinction, not just extinction of animals, but potentially extinction of humans because of the impact factory farming is having. It was a very um, kind of cross-sectional conference. It was very, very interesting. Yeah, it was fascinating. Before we uh, obviously dive into your history and everything you're doing now, what I usually like to ask people is what was their, their vegan journey or their plant-based journey? How did it all begin and how did you come up close with this lifestyle? Yeah, um, so I became vegetarian when I was about 15 or 16 years old. Um, and really, if I'm totally honest, it's because I had a crush on a boy who I was trying to impress. <laughs> That's just That just shows you social pressure can go a long way. Well, um, yeah. And, um, but it stuck and it, when I really kind of dug into it, I was really concerned and that was the start of my journey. Um, and I went vegan when I first started working for Compassion and World Farming, um, in my early twenties. And, uh, again, I kind of slipped back into vegetarianism. And then when I had my second son, um, my second son was lactose intolerant. And because I was, um, I was nursing him. If I had anything dairy, it would cause him to throw up. And I just kind of realized I, I just had all these connections happen at once for me. First of all, realizing it's really unhealthy. Second, realizing the connection and the bond between the mother and the calf and me and my son and just kind of had this almost, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of not a light bulb moment, but a light shattering moment where I <laughs> realized that the same bond that happened between a calf and a and the mother was happening between my son and I, and I was why well, I was uh, stripping the mother and the calf of that bond, um, and that's when I became vegan, and that was almost a decade ago now, so about nine years, um, and I've really become committed to that uh, from an ethical point of view, you know, from that perspective, but then from a health point of view too. So at the time, and the benefit for me was I've always had eczema my whole life. And when I became, when I stopped dairy altogether, um, I also, uh, all my eczema symptoms went away and it was just a, a, a wonderful benefit that I hadn't counted on. Um, 
and I wouldn't have realized otherwise. So all good health, animals, and my son's health as well. So, and my, all of my children are vegan now. Um, they were always vegetarian, but now they're all vegan, and my husband's vegan Amazing. too. Yeah. Powerful realization, isn't it? It's wonderful to hear that experience because I think, especially for a lot of mothers, when they make that connection, it helps them understand their place and also our impact as human beings. Um, obviously, before you're, we go into your new role, um, let's talk a bit about compassion and world farming. Sure. You you were there for quite a considerable amount of time. So what was your sort of approach with this work and what were some of the sort of challenges and successes you had working for Compassion? Yeah. Um, so when I first started Compassion World Farming about eight years ago, um, the headquarters asked me to open up the office. And the first thing I did was do a kind of scoping study, a lay of the land to say, what are the worst problems no one else is doing that Compassion and World Farming can do best? Uh, and the thing that really rose very quickly to the surface was broilers, which are the meat chickens. Nobody was working on them, yet 90% of the animals are factory farm, that are factory farmed are broiler chickens. Uh, and I had happened to move to the state, Georgia, which is in the southeast corner of the United States, where they is the most producing, produces the most chickens uh, in the entire country. And in fact, if it was a country, it would be the sixth largest producing country in the world, 1.4 billion every year. So I had landed in this place where every direction I looked in, there were chickens and there was chicken production. It was part of the biggest part of the economy. And so right away, I decided that's what needed to be focused on. And one of the biggest challenges at the time, you know, this was nearly 10 years ago now, was not um, saying to people, these are the facts and these are the images, was just getting images. And at mm -hmm. the time, there hadn't been an investigation into a chicken factory farm in the United States for a decade. So the last one had been Compassion Over Killing in um, you know, the early 2000s. I think it was like 2001 or two or something like that. And no one had even seen what they looked like because they were so under lock and key. And it was so mm -hmm. hard to do undercover investigations. And so really my first challenge and task was to just see what they look like. Where were they at? What was going on inside of these, these closed warehouses where 90% of the factory farmed animals in the United States are being raised? And so that was kind of my first challenge to overcome. And that really brought me to Craig Watts. And I had been working, Craig Watts is, was a farmer who worked for Purdue and contract farmer for Purdue, the sixth largest uh, chicken producing uh, company in the United States. And through a mutual journalist, uh, I was able to work with him. And what happened is this farmer was equally as displeased and disheartened by the direction of the industry. And I found a very unlikely partner in him. And I was allowed to go into, he invited me and a filmmaker to go into his houses, the warehouses where he was raising the chickens, this thing mm -hmm. that I couldn't get images of and nobody could get images of at the time. He allowed me to come in openly film for months. And we, mm -hmm. I, I really got to know the industry and why, why was it like this? And also why was this farmer doing it? Mm -hmm. And it gave me a lot of empathy for the farmers. Uh, you know, I already had deep empathy for the animals, of course, the chickens. Mm -hmm. But I also began, began to understand his perspective and why he had ended up in this situation and why he couldn't get out of it so easily and really mm -hmm. that he's locked in debt. So a farmer... Mm -hmm has, um, when they begin this practice of uh, factory farming and contract farming for a big company, they have to take out a massive loan, like, like, a, like a mortgage. So a million dollars, you know, $400,000. 
Uh, and and wow. then they're locked into debt, paying it off. And the only way they can pay it off is flock by flock. So they're really almost like indentured servants. And wow. he wanted to stay in that job because he wanted to stay on the land because it had been granted to him from the king of England five generations ago. And all he wanted to do was stay on that land and raise his kids in kind of the countryside. Mm-hmm. And this was the only way to do it. So I gained a lot of insight into the farmer's perspective, but also deeply into how the industry worked because I got to really ask the questions and see what was actually happening. And we got wonderful, deep, meaningful images with a good camera. And through that, uh, we were able to work with Nicholas Kristof, the New York Times journalist, to expose what was happening inside of this farm. And it went viral. It, you know, we had a million views on the YouTube video in 24 hours, which was more than we expected. And it was in every, wow. you know, it was in Japan and Brazil and England and the United States. It was everywhere. The story of a whistleblower farmer working with a vegan activist to expose uh, a farm that was saying that they were humanely raising chickens when they weren't. And it was just the unlikeliness of all of that and the risk he took. And that really was one of the kind of changing moments for me at Compassion War Farming. Um, about really the need to collaborate and and really try to work with the typical adversary and get them on our side and really mm-hmm. think through the problem through the opponent's perspective mm-hmm. and try to find ways to collaborate. And that included later with the, with the actual company, Purdue, and really thinking mm-hmm. through, why are they set on this way? Why are they advertising it this way? And beginning to collaborate with them. And they later became one of the more progressive companies and they took on board our criticisms and they really looked at the problem. Um, and even more recently, they invested in a plant-based line in their company. So this, wow. the whole it's journey is incredible. It's like you started with this farmer who allowed me in, we filmed, we exposed it. And then at the end of this journey, that same company that was at one time calling their chicken humanely raised and realized it wasn't, improved some of their standards. And ultimately now, are, have a plant-based line of, of meat that they're producing. So it's an incredible journey. And it really it, taught it me a lot incredible. about what can come if you search for common ground with your mm. adversary. Absolutely. I think, and this is, the, this is the interesting thing about the movement and what we're trying to achieve. I think um, I'm actually doing a speech for my very first speech this weekend at Bedgefest in London. Wonderful. And part of what I'm going to be talking about is this, about how do we effectively communicate with, well, like you say, the opposition and how do we get them to come across to our side of the conversation? Because, of course, you know, for, for most of us, when we um, come into this world of animal rights and animal ethics, we want the first thing and the first kind of intuition really is to want to go and save the animals and free them from the cages and, uh, you know, and, 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 and it's almost a kind of, you know, it, is an, it comes from an emotional perspective. But these industries are huge and vast and generate, you know, billions of dollars worth of revenue for the country and economics. They keep everything running. You can't, it's not practical or possible or feasible to sort of just rip the heart out of these organizations. You have to go in on the inside and work with people who are there and speak their language and try and advocate in a way that helps them understand uh, from their perspective, because I think there is this intention or this this desire to always want to kind of you know stand up to industry and try and destroy it, but it's not that simple. Yeah, yeah, and I so I've I, I've written a whole book on this called Grilled um, Adversary Turning Adversaries to Allies in the Fight to Change the Chicken Industry, which will be out next fall. 
uh, with Bloomsbury, published by Bloomsbury. Yes. So it's all about that. It's really about searching for that common ground with the opponent and what can come of it. And the Mm -hmm. stories of, of, of my personal interaction with the opponent and kind of painting them as human beings that have found themselves in these jobs that really, there's a lot of, that there's a lot more in common than you'd think. And we need to build in that commonality and for the sake of the animals, find the commonality and build consensus and progress from there. Speaking of the animals. So we're all really devoting our lives to free animals from oppression and suffering in our various different ways. But um, as human beings, why should we care about animals? They look so different to us. They don't speak our language. Um, you know, most people don't really share their lives with animals in, 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 in any other way other than on their plate. So how do we convince people to, to advocate for animal rights, animal ethics? Yeah, I think, um, I think that sometimes we come in too hard on a, a hard-lined um, animal rights message. And if that if, if we could just convince people to care through shocking photos and aggressive messages, we would have turned the whole world vegan already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we haven't. And in fact, that number's not really increasing very much. Um, so what I think we have to do is connect again with people in the places that matter to them. So if you're someone who has heart disease or you're overweight and you're thinking through improving your health, you kindly step in and say, these are diet changes that could really help you on your problem. And these diet changes, by the way, also are very compassionate to animals. And so you're starting from the place that they are listening rather than putting a wall up because you're judging them. And trying to find those those points of engagement are critical if we're going to get people to even begin to listen to our message of compassion. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be not compassionate and people continue to eat meat not because of how it's produced but in spite of how it's produced and our job is to make you know that the alternative more attractive easier convenient kinder uh, not to make it a judgment an aggressive judgment um, to make that change and i think we've got to find luckily with you know with this issue there's there's a lot of tools in the toolbox and we need to use them all you know, factory farming is at the root of so many problems in the world. And in that sense, we're lucky. We just got, we have to remember that and we need to be very um, mindful about using all those tools and not just insisting on one tool that might not fit the person you're talking to, which is mm-hmm. the ethical argument. Um, and I think that eventually people come to that. It's just not starting with that. We do. We have to look at our audience and adapt our message according to our audience, don't we? Yeah. Um, so when it comes to human beings, um, do you believe that we're endowed with compassion at birth? Or do you think this compassionate, care, caring nature is something that we have to learn as children? Oh, I have no doubt that um, compassion is a built-in thing. Um, and I have, you know, I have three kids and I see this in my kids and their interaction with animals. I mean, if you look at all the storybooks and all of the um, stuffed animals, the you know the, the plush toys that they have, uh, there is a natural tendency to be compassionate to animals. And mm. you know, um, in one of his talks, Earthling Ed says, if you put a rabbit in a crib with a baby, does that 
baby want to cuddle the rabbit or eat her? And the natural, you know, reaction to an animal is to be excited and interested and curious and um, of a child. And that's who we are inside. That is, and we untrain children to, we train children to ignore that. So when children are, you know, most children love pigs. They love them. They're the subject of so many stories and uh, they're such a favorite animal. And then at some point they realize possibly, or they're told that a pig is bacon. And their parents kind of train them to say, well, that's okay. That's how we do it. And children look to their parents to kind of teach them. And I know that because my kids have no problem being vegan. They don't even question it. And they question the other choice. You know, they question, they, they question the choice in the first place. And that gives me a lot of hope. It makes me think, the, you know, the, the eating of animals is really very connected to cultural and social norms. And uh, those are things that change all are always changing and evolving and we it's not something uh that is so set that we can't undo it um when it comes to kind of the message and how we convey this message um various organizations and individuals have different kind of tactics don't they so everyone has Mm -hmm. different styles um we were obviously just talking about how like you know showing people shocking imagery um, doesn't always work. Obviously, for some people it does, and some people it doesn't. Um, mm-hmm. um, I'm a big fan of Mercy for Animals and the style in which it conveys the message because you do kind of um, you do kind of what's the word um, convey things in a, in a way that's shocking. But then there's also the other approaches as well. So it does kind of cover everything, I think. But how do you find that balance between showing people the truth, the violent, gruesome, bloody truth, and then also at the same time, like what we were saying, reach out to people where they're at and connect with things that matter to them? Yeah, I think um, people are motivated by different things. And I th- we bring a lot of people to Mercy for Animals because they see our Instagram and they're horrified by the shocking images. And our name, Mercy for Animals, speaks so clearly. Nobody's mm-hmm. against being merciful towards animals. I mean, you're a psychopath if you are. Mm-hmm. And so there's that common, again, that kind of built-in compassion that all human beings have towards other animals that I think speaks to almost everyone. But not everyone is at a place where they c- can uh, look at that. And some people are more sensitive and they don't want to see those shocking images or some people just don't want to admit they need to make change. Um, they're not that they're not there yet, and they don't have the tools to do that yet. And and we don't want to lose those people. We don't want those people when they hear the word vegan to kind of roll their eyes and you know think of the annoying cousin that comes to Thanksgiving and causes a problem, right? right. And we want to really create a very broad tent that everybody can come under, no matter where they're at in the journey. And that's how we'll help animals most. And I, th- I really, truly believe once you start the journey, you, you generally keep going in the right direction. It might take some people a longer time or a shorter time. And I always think of like a marathon race or something. And there's people who are the winners and the right at the front, you know, and there's people mm-hmm. who are walking at the end. And, but everybody's going in the right direction. And I do feel like we're going in the right direction. We are... And and our job is really to make it easy for people to get into the race. Like the the bar has to be low and Mm -hmm. everybody has to get into the marathon and then be with us 
and we need to like be giving them water and encouragement and cheering them on, you know, throughout the whole race until they get there. Uh, and we have to recognize that people need different timelines and different tools and different encouragement to get there. Absolutely. When it comes to this journey, though, we're all advocating for animals in our various different ways. Um, but how do we remain positive? Because when you look at the numbers, you know, meat consumption, dairy consumption, all these animal products don't seem to be going down. Yes, dairy farms are closing all over the UK and, the, you know, things are shifting in the animal agriculture industry. But it seems when you look at the kind of hard, cold numbers, things seem to be going the opposite direction to what we want. Um, how do we measure the success of what we're achieving as organizations? Because obviously it's quite difficult to quantify how many people are going vegan and staying vegan in, you know, in an entire country. Yeah, it is very challenging and it is hard for everyone to stay positive and optimistic for sure. And I think those cold, looking at whole card, cold, cold hard numbers is critical mm-hmm. for us because we can be in danger of swallowing our own smoke and thinking mm-hmm. we're well ahead of where we actually are. Um, and the reality is that more animals are in factory farms than ever before in history right now. Mm-hmm. And the reason mm-hmm. is human population is growing. And with mm-hmm. each new human on the planet, there is an expectation that they will eat certain number of animals in their lifetime. And we need to be, I, I think that part of why we have not been successful is we've been too elitist and regimented in the way that we approach this. We, we kind of say you're vegan or you're out of the club. Mm-hmm. And I feel like what we really need to do is it's urgent that we're, again, where every, anybody is on the journey that they just get on the journey. It's mm-hmm. urgent because there are more animals in factory farms than ever before. And we can't afford, if somebody just wants to eat one animal less a week or somebody wants to eat zero animals ever again, that all helps. And we need mm-hmm. to get everybody on that path. And that's how I stay optimistic because I do think that people are getting on the journey. And they're, and I know we know that because the plant-based market is exploding. So mm-hmm. it is growing mm-hmm. at 8 nine, 10% a year now. It's incredible. That's, yeah, that's it's why inc- I'm optimistic. I feel like the plant-based market solution is where mm. we're really going to see changes in the next right. decade. Absolutely. And I say to people all the time, you know, think of veganism a little bit, a bit like a club, you know, you've got a street and you've got all these different clubs as a person walks down, which one do you think you, they're going to want to join? The one that looks fun and affordable and hip and cool and tasty, or the one that's aggressive and angry and has got a giant bouncer that stands outside the front and says, you can't come in unless you are X, Y, and Z. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and, you know, this puritanical approach in the whole moral baseline might be an emotional desire of us as vegans that, you know, people need to be all or nothing, but right. ultimately effectiveness, this again is what my, my talk, my, my very first VegFest talk is going to be about, which is obviously takes uh, some of the stuff from Dr. Melanie Joy, but also everything that I've learned over the last like six years as a vegan is to try and explain to people that, you know, there's the emotional side of what you want to achieve, which is to get people to go vegan right now after that one conversation you had with them. Or you can chip away at them like I did with my 60-year-old parents. And after mm-hmm. five years of chipping away at them, they're both now vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that, Thank you. And that came because of patience and mm-hmm. just understanding because I think, you know, as people, if we push others and we force them, they're less likely to take an idea on themselves and retain it. They're more likely to reject it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, very, very yeah. clear. 
Yeah. And I think that's what we have to do, don't we, is, is to sort of like create this balance where we make people understand that or help them understand, as you say, that it's, um, you know, it's a journey. And yeah, it's not ideal that some people take a year or six months or six years, but we can't hold a gun to people's heads. <laughs> totally. Does not work. But on the other side, we have industry and we have advertising and we have media and they are constantly pushing a narrative that explains to people or tries to appeal to people's good nature, people's kind nature. Human beings want to do something better. So they buy organic or humane slaughter mm -hmm. or all these things because they actually believe or they've been told that they're doing something better. Your meat had, uh, you know, a happy death. <laughs> Do you want right. to talk a little bit about this, what we call humane slaughter or the humane hoax and how that in a way is the sort of smokescreen that props up the consumer's decision-making? Yeah, unfortunately, I think companies are preying on consumers' lack of understanding of the issue and, they're, and, all, and consumer, consumers trusting that labels are correct. However, I will say we're at a high time in which consumers are suspicious of companies mm -hmm. and labels. And that is because of people's access to information. And they can be in their store and they can look at this label and they're looking at labels more and they can look it up themselves. And if it's not clear, they can move on to the product that is clear or that doesn't have any animals in them at all. Um, and I think, you know, that is becoming... That will happen more and more, which is why, for example, with Purdue, Purdue had a label on it that said um, humanely raised. And that they ended up being sued by HSUS and Compassion Over Killing. And although they settled out of court, the label was removed. And that was also the same farm that I exposed and contributed to that, uh, the same label. And as a result, you know, Purdue was put under the magnifying glass and they we're f they are now a company who is being the, very transparent about what they're doing so that people can judge for themselves. And they're not putting a label on it because they, and, and really you're, you'd be hard pressed to find any label in the United States that says the word humane on it because we jump on that and we jump right away like, no, you don't. You cannot tell people this is humane because that, that is not something that we will allow you to define. Mm. And that is something that over the years the animal groups have cracked down on and have sued and have penalized companies and both the media and financially through lawsuits and is almost non-existent. So I think the labeling is coming to an end because society is really aware and really cracking down on these things and they have access to information and all we have to do is provide it. And I think people make better decisions based on that. With these industries, though, they are very powerful, have a lot of money. Um, and with the ag-gag laws um, in the US, like, what's the progress been with that? And how, and if you want to explain to the listeners as well who may not be familiar with ag-gag laws. Yeah, so ag-gag laws for, so Mercy for Animals has done around 60 investigations, which is more than any other organization, all the other organizations combined. And it's one of our core pieces of work. We just believe very strongly you know, we don't have to dramatize anything. As long as we get these images out to people, it's very clear why you shouldn't support this system. And the industry has reacted very strongly, knowing that this is really an Achilles heel for them, and tried to pass state-based laws that make it an offense, you know, uh, uh, against the law, makes it illegal 
to take footage from inside of these farms. So we, the whistleblowers, become the criminals instead of those torturing animals. And unfortunately, it's passed in many states, and it's become more difficult for us to gain footage from these states. In North Carolina, where I once filmed, after my filming, is now a state where there is an ag-gag law. And it's a terrible, terrible idea on their part because the industry thought we'll just keep these images out, but instead the media were livid. They, mm. they, it's, it's, a, it's an offense to freedom of press and, um, and they really painted themselves in a, in a bad light. They're hiding mm. something and that's Correct. very, very clear. And we won't stop trying to get images out. So if they're going to pass ag-gag laws, we'll get the farmers to collaborate with us. We'll find a way. And we, we're using drones now to get images, for example. And we're ahead on, the, I'm sure that they're going to come with drone legislation soon, but we'll keep catapulting ahead and leapfrogging ahead. And, and we'll always be ahead of them because we're more motivated than anyone to get these images out. Uh, but it's, it is an uphill battle and they know, and the reason it's an uphill battle is because they know these images are you know, the reality and they are their Achilles heel. They, getting those images out is very damaging to the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's a kind of Samson and Goliath situation, isn't it? Yeah, and it will it take is. some time. But thank goodness there are many of us working to shift and change this on a daily basis, which is what gives me hope. Um, so as far as the movement goes, um, I want to touch a bit about touch a bit on the what I call the identity crisis of our movement. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many aspects to this race, gender, um, socioeconomic um, standing. There's lots of things that kind of create a barrier uh, to entry to our movement. But within the movement as well, there seems to be a lack of unity. There's a lot of infighting, a lot of name calling, a lot of uh, human problems, you could say, coming to the movement, which essentially sort of destabilize it as a movement. Um, Dr. Melanie Joy spoken on this a lot about toxic communication and how within organizations, within friendship groups, within activist groups, people um, struggle to communicate with each other effectively to get the point across and often lose sight of the actual goal. Um, can you talk a bit about how can we create more unity? Do you have any ideas on what we should be doing to sort of try and help people understand that we have a shared goal, we're all on the same team? Yeah, I mean, we've had firsthand experience with this with the um, McDonald's Coalition campaign that we've been running in the United States with uh, five other groups. So Mercy for Animals and five other groups, including Compassion and World Farming, the Humane League, Animal Equality, World Animal Protection and Compassion Over Killing have been collaborating uh, on a campaign uniquely for the first time to really to get McDonald's to change their policy on broilers. Um, and I think that uh, when you focus on a common goal and remember that that's all that matters, all of this infighting just fades. It really does. And it's when you lose sight on the vision of a world without animal cruelty in a world where all animals are respected and free. When you lose sight of that vision is when those, those things are able to rise to the surface and be your main focus. So my strategy is to continually remind people of why we're here and create clear strategies and clear visions and missions regarding why we're here and what we need to do and remind people how hard the job is. You know, the things that I say about more animals are in factory farms than ever before in history. We don't have time to mess around and we need Mm -hmm. to respect each other 
And really we're the people that are working on this issue, you know, we are the minority of the population that are 99% on the same page on everything because we're mm-hmm. vegan and we all mm-hmm. care about this so deeply. We're dedicating our life to it. We should not be using that energy to fight with each other. And just that, le- I think leadership reminding people of that, being um, modeling good relationships and collaborative behavior and having that modeling happening right at the top and throughout all management is critical. So if you have a leader that is, you know, basically talking behind backs, not being humble, stealing like the press limelight, those are where you see the rest of the organization go, oh, that's how we're supposed to behave. But if you model good behavior and you model collaborative work um, and almost, you know, almost like a customer service mentality, like we are Mm -hmm. here to collaborate. We are here for the animals. We have to work together if we're going to get there. And, and modeling that is really critical in leadership. And it's a big part of kind of creating that unity is about helping people understand their relationships with each other, isn't it? And I think, you know, this is a skill. Um, and I think we certainly um, at Plant-Based News want to be a part of helping foster improved and effective communication between people. So not necessarily between vegans, but I think what I want over the next few years is to make sure that there are, there are you know, there's um, resources available to people to understand and learn how to advocate in an effective way. It's not necessarily like the detail, but about how you communicate your ideas and thoughts, whether it's to friends, family, people at work, because I think ultimately more vegans equals less animal suffering. That's essentially the kind of... Right the crux of the equation, and that's where our energy should be focused. When it comes to um, the gender balance or the gender bias within our movement, I feel there is a slight problem. Well, not a slight problem, a big problem. Yeah. Um, you know, the movement itself is some 80% women, 80% female. However, the, the, the people that seem to sort of dominate the airwaves are the men. Um, right. As the first female president of Mercy for Animals, do you want to talk a bit about how, and having this leadership role, uh, talk a bit about how we can um, transform this imbalance? Yeah. Um, Well, I, you know, I'm very honored to be the first president of Mercy for Animals. Um, But I I would say there's been, so I, I, I am very proud to do that. I think there's been a real shift recently in the last year. And when you look around, a lot of the leaders now are women, and we need to recognize that shift happened quickly. So HSUS, the interim president, is Kitty Block. Um, Compassion Over Killing is Eric Meyer. Eric, uh, Animal Equality is Sharon Nunez. And Compassion Over Farming, Rachel Dreskin. We have the head of World Animal Protection in the United States is a woman. And the, you know it's, it goes on. And I think it's shifting quickly. And the realization... And, and I think women are feeling emboldened and empowered to, to make that shift. Um, and the more women that are in these positions, the more normal it will be, uh, the more experience that women will have in leadership positions, it will also open up other women to take those leadership positions. So I think there's a number of ways we, we can help women rise in the animal protection. And the first thing is to put women in leadership roles because it models the norm. It models for others what uh, is normal looking and feeling for the movement. Uh, there, I think, are other basics that need to be implemented that create a safe and equitable workspace. And we saw that again happen in the United States. Um, some of the donors wrote and said they would not be donating to 
organizations unless they have strong anti-harassment policies mm-hmm. and pay equity policies, things like that. And that really shifted the animal rights movement in the United States that the donors coming forward like that was phenomenal. And it forced everybody to act quickly. It was amazing how fast everybody acted when the donors were saying that. Um, So having, you know, strong anti-harassment policies, establishing pay equity. um, And I think then you have to work on the deeper cultural issues like, you know, hiring biases and prioritizing female representation and senior positions and on the board. So, for example, Mercy for Animals is currently expanding its board, has three members right now, which are two men and one woman, and we're expanding to, with, to seven. And so we're, the board is actively looking for female representation, the majority on that board, so that our board represents the movement. So it should be 80% female, as you said, and our leadership should be 80% female. And I think that's really critical. And, and then you have to look at other issues around diversity. And those are very those are very challenging things because as you know we've had a very um, really honestly a, a very almost elitist uh, perspective at this stage and so really digging into diversity and culture sensitivity um, and and Mercy for Animals is going to be working with Dr. Breeze Harper um, through uh, and and we also have been who is um, a Harvard academic that works on these issues on um, diversity and inclusion. And we've also been working with a nonprofit Encompass. And so there's these tools emerging to help us uh, look at diversity issues. And there's been a real push and pressure for change around um, equity, pay equity, anti-harassment policies, and sort of women and modeling for women to rise in, in the animal protection movement. That's fantastic to hear. On, on the topic of uh, diversity as well, obviously, you know, human beings are diverse uh, in their culture and their ethnicity, you know, going back to that question about um, identity crisis, you know, veganism certainly in the West does have a very white face, you could say. Yeah. And, you know, and and it's seen, especially in the UK, you know, it's seen as a sort of white middle class thing, um, which it isn't necessarily through exclusion, but I think through access to information or uh, socioeconomic privilege. Um, how do we, um, as kind of you know, advocates, make sure that at the table of the at that conversation table that there are people. Um, of all different uh, walks of life and ethnicities and cultures? How do we actively encourage the conversation to be broader? Yeah, well, again, it's kind of getting back to the beginning of our conversation and really needing to um, consider all of the reasons people might care about this issue. And, um, you know, not everybody can afford to buy the Beyond Burger. and Mm -hmm. And really it's difficult. It's, it's a delicious burger, but we need also need to think about why anybody would want to be vegan and all the options that are out there. I think, I believe that we have the professional animal rights movement is really an, an, an enormous disadvantage because it is so white. It is so privileged and elitist in many ways. And we will never end factory farming unless we end that exclusivity of our movement. We really have to to salt, you know, we, we have all of the, we have to look at all of the problems as to why factory farming exists. And one of the main problems is it's cheap, it's convenient, and people don't have to think about it. We need to realize that and think about all the, the reasons why people buy meat. And I think we will never be able to achieve the world we envisage unless we create communities and include people of color in a very authentic and respect, respectful way. So, you know, I, 
I have um, Colombian background and a Latina coming coming to this. I can already see how we're not speaking to that community, and that's just mm-hmm. my bias. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure somebody who's African American will be able to better see that bias not be included. And then having staff from those perspectives will help everyone realize that those those communities are not being spoken to. So mm-hmm. our mission really requires us to make our movement more diverse because we will not end factory farming unless we do. And we have to be careful to do this in not a kind of tokenized way, but in, in you know just something that's checking a box of like mm-hmm. the training must be diversity and inclusion, but yeah. we'll only achieve this um, if we work really hard to be inclusive, to think about internal cultures and really, um, you know, not just hire people of color to check a box because they'll easily burn out and cycle out if, you know, the whole movement is kind of relying on them and that kind of thing, but really... Um, making it a, a, a culture building process, really mm. changing and shifting our culture to be more inclusive. Mm, absolutely. And listening as well, asking the right questions. I think this yeah. is a big, big part of it. And not enough people listen. There's, a, there's an awful lot of um, outward movement, but not enough kind of taking in of what people's needs and requirements are. I often try to explain to people that you know, when advocating for veganism, if you're talking to someone who, who feels oppressed and marginalized and you're saying to them, oh, you need to care about animals, it's very, it's not that easy for someone who lives a life where they feel constantly in fear of the society they live in. And then you're asking them to care about, you know, something else that really isn't part of their um, immediate frame of what they feel influence. Um, right. And so we have to be able to be patient and, and listen to people and give them what they need and support them. And, and, and this is, I think what using for, for me, at least my, my understanding using your privilege is in the correct way is about, it's about noticing, becoming right. aware of the privileges that you have and using them for good and making sure you, like you say, not in a tokenistic kind of way, but kind of, you know, with open arms, reaching out and, and, and lifting and supporting and caring right. and encouraging and, you know, and being part of that process rather than doing it for the kudos, you know, rather than saying, Oh, I'm just doing this. I'm like you say, ticking that box um, yeah. just for the appearance. So it's such an important thing. Um, when it comes to leadership, you're in your role. You, you haven't been uh, in this position long, but what do you see your role evolving into and how do you plan to kind of like shift and change the organization? Because I assume as a leader, you will be shifting it in a particular direction. Yeah, so I have I have uh, some top priorities coming in as president. My first week at um, Mercy for Animals, I locked leadership in a house and I said, we're not coming out till we come up with a very clear three-year strategy. And we really worked through a very deep process of looking at our vision, our mission, our core values. We did a really deep situational analysis at what we're good at, what we're bad at, what we need to do better, um, and what were our audiences? What is the real problem that we're trying to fix? Uh, we then came out with some big change goals that we want to achieve over the long term. And then we're looking at the strategic objectives that will help us achieve that in the next three years. Um, so we, and then we're planning to publish that in January and or February time in the new year sometime. And we will hold ourselves accountable and we expect others to hold us accountable to that progress. Um, that we make for animals. And that will be, I think, a shift for the movement to have someone, to have an organization kind of professionally put out there, like, this is who we are, this is what we're going to do, and hold us accountable to it. And I hope it will help other organizations rise to that occasion as well and be clearer and 
more solid in where they're headed and, um, and, and be transparent, frankly, transparent about what we're trying to do. We're not hiding our mission. We're not hiding our vision. We're not hiding our goals. We're going to be clear with everyone we meet with. This is what we're trying to do and why. Um, and then the second thing I'm working on is really about the internal culture. My goal is really to make Mercy for Animals a model for the entire movement in terms of how we support our staff, how we help them grow into leaders, how we collaborate and really work together. I want people when they leave the room to go, wow, all those people from MFA are amazing. They are so kind and they're ambassadors for farmed animals and how we need to behave. And I really want to, to get there. I strongly believe that people are our best asset. And we really have to give people the tools and support them um, so they can really show up and work hard for animals every single day. And the third area I'm working on is um, really hiring key positions. So we went through a big transition year and there was a lot of unfilled leadership roles, six leadership roles I'm filling right now. And I'm really excited that I've already filled two of them. So the senior vice president um, of uh programs, which oversees all our programmatic work. And then the vice president of corporate engagement has been filled. And I'm really excited. They're going to be new people to the United States. Um, one of them is from Australia. The other one is outside the movement, but they're amazing leaders. Uh, and then th the fourth thing I'm doing is really for Mercy for Animals, we kind of built the tower very, very high. And it's a bit wobbly because we, we went from 30 to 140 staff in three years. Wow. And we need to work on some of that foundational support. And operational, uh, operational support for an organization, especially in our movement, is really undervalued. But it's the oil in the machine. And if the oil isn't there, we're clunky and slow and inefficient. And I'm putting in place a bunch of systems that will help us be very efficient. Uh, it means investing in things like Salesforce or engaging networks, which are these tools that help you to be more effective and faster at what you do. Uh, and that's hard for an organization that's full of activists to accept. Like, oh, we have to, <laughs> we have to invest in the foundational like database. You know, mm -hmm. if you want to be able to talk to all these people that want to hear from us mm -hmm. proactively without having to spend tons. It's got to the point where it takes too much time. And there's these tools out there that we need to purchase. So those are really the the kind of um, the four areas: the three year strategy, really working on being a leader leadership in terms of culture hiring the internal positions, uh, and then, you know, working on some of the foundational uh, improvements. Sounds very exciting. Definitely um, looking forward to seeing what, what emerges in the next few years. Yeah. Um, so the juxtaposition of um, Compassion in World Farming and Mostly for Animals, two very different organizations. When we spoke at the um, Extinction Conference, we touched very lightly on the sort of two opposing worlds. One of... Um, you know, welfareism and one of abolition, I could say. And there's obviously, mm -hmm. there are spaces in between. How do we, I'm trying to frame the question the right way, how do we get people to understand that, you know, there are a multitude of approaches to the end goal? Because I think, you know, this goes back to the point of like perfectionism and advocating for reduction. How do we help people understand that, you know, this is a long road, Right. Mm -hmm. And that if we want to achieve, you know, total animal liberation and ending all abuse, you know, exploitation of animals, they're going to have to be some sacrifices along the way. And it's a very bitter pill for people to swallow, um, especially the passionate vegans, especially the vegans who've been vegan for 20, 30 years. They've been fighting for this for their almost, you know, half their lives. And they're frustrated and angry uh, when people come along and say reduction 
championing reduction actually leads to a more will lead to a more vegan world. So how do we have that conversation with people? I think using analogies that take us outside of the actual situation are helpful. Mm-hmm. And one that I often use is if you were on death row, meaning you had a death sentence in, and you were sitting in prison and you were sitting in a quite horrible pres- prison that was overcrowded and bad food and horrible, you would want someone to be working not only to improve your prison conditions, but also to be working on ending the death sentence. You would want both if you were that prisoner. And that's what animals are. And they deserve that from us. They deserve us working on reducing their suffering while they're imprisoned in these systems, while we also work on the longer term goal. Mm. We have to do both or we are ignoring the tens of billion, 70 billion farmed animal, land animals that are in these, these essentially these horrible prisons. Mm. And we owe it to the animals to do that. We cannot ignore mm. that. And it's, it's unethical for us to ignore they're suffering in the systems they definitely will be in for the short term. And we also can't ignore the long-term vision. We can't stop trying to end the death sentence that they have. Such a great analogy. I'm definitely going to be using that one. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So let's talk a bit about Prop 12. Um, Can you explain to our audience a bit about what Prop 12 is and why passing and what, why passing it will, what passing it will have an impact, how it will have an impact on animal rights. So on November 6th, California voters will be going to vote on Proposition 12. And that was a state ballot initiative where the citizens of California asked for this to be put on the ballot. And if passed by California voters in about a week and a half's time, Proposition 12, it would guarantee mother pigs, baby cows, race reveal, and egg-laying hens are free from any type of cages or crates at all. But it goes even further than that. So it would also mandate that all eggs, veal, and pork sold in California from farms have to meet those standards, meaning you could not find a caged egg in California. And and that's really significant because it's the fifth largest economy in the world, California. And a company would have to meet those standards set by this law. Uh, and the ripple effects of that law across the country would be huge. So we achieved this in Massachusetts. That was like the test case. And it passed with flying colors. It ca- passed. It was a 78% um, uh, approval rating when it got voted, a, a yes vote. So it passed in Massachusetts already. But this is a bigger battleground. This is, as I said, the sixth largest economy in the world, fifth largest economy in the world. So it's very significant. Um, it's going to be very close. We are down to the wire. It's got about a 57% approval rating right now. We're running a lot of ads throughout California to try to inform people. And the opposition has started running ads against us. And that will for sure hurt that approval rating, creating a lot of confusion around what the vote is. And it will come down to the wire. We will see. But And, and anybody who, who can give money wherever you are in the world, it would really help to get it out there if this is aired before <laughs> November 6th. But if not, then we'll know by then. Sounds like uh, sounds like some big changes coming. This is the interesting thing about industry in the US though, because it's a multi-trillion dollar industry that has so much power um, over the government, over local policy. Is it with when you see this, when you when you understand the enormity of these industries? I mean, how do we how do you remain positive that we have any chance in dismantling them? 
Um, I think that the fact that it's on the ballot means it got enough signatures that mm-hmm. citizens care about it. I get a lot of faith from what happened in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. 78% of the population were bothered to go to vote and vote right. for this. They, mm-hmm. That's that's three quarters majority of the population who said, yeah, I don't want my, the animals kept in cages and crates, and I don't want anything in this state that's sold like that. That gives me a lot of hope. We've got the people on our side. We, consumers don't want this. They don't. And as I said, people are eating this in spite of how it's produced, not because of it. And if we give them the true option, as in go to the ballot and vote, they always say, I don't want this. They don't. This is not okay. Appealing to people's good nature. So just going um, back into the subject of the farms and the, and the industry itself, um, here in the UK we've been seeing examples of farmers involved in animal agriculture actually doing a 180-degree turn and shifting their entire uh, operation to farm plants rather than animals. Um, it's often seen as actually a more profitable uh, business. Are you, is Mercy Animals potentially involved or looking to be involved in any ways and, and initiatives that could help farmers shift away from animal agriculture and make it easier for more farmers to kind of adopt this business model? I definitely would like to see us do that. Um, you know, at Craig Watts, the chicken farmer who worked for Purdue, he quit farming. And since then, we've been looking at ways and really trying to figure out a way that his chicken houses could become something else and really trying to mathematically model out what that would look like, what it would cost, uh, and how can we do a cookie cutter model for the rest of the country. I think that part of our job when I kind of became very empathetic with the factory farmer was we can't just, we need to have constructive solutions. So when we go to these factory farmers and we say, Mm -hmm. stop doing this and they Mm -hmm. go, yeah, are you going to pay my bills? Mm -hmm. I still have a, you know, to send my kids to school or have to feed, put food on the table. We have to come with solutions at the ready. And when we do, they're more likely to say yes. Everybody's Mm -hmm. more likely to say yes. And so I think a key part of solving ending factory farming is we really need to find the solutions and the future economy for these farmers and for rural people who are still living, you know, they live in the countryside. That's a way of life. They want to stay there. And factory farming came along and offered them a way. If we can offer them another way, there's going to be less likelihood that this could happen in the first place. And so I really do feel is a critical part of, of our critical solutions and constructive solutions as we move forward. So just talking about other like useful solutions that we can provide to people. Let's talk about the consumer. You, uh, most of your animals have a site, chooseveg.com, which is a, a brilliant way people can learn how to adopt a plant-based lifestyle. Do you want to talk a little bit about this? Because I think this is in, in contrast to the traditional um, video content and article content, which focuses on the suffering and the exploitation mm-hmm. and, um, th- you know, the real negative side of animal agriculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're really experimenting with that and finding it to be very successful and not just in the United States, but in other countries. So a lot of our, um, we have a food policy team led by Alan Dare and he, they're working in other countries like Brazil or Mexico or India and they're not even going in and talking about the cruelty side of it first. They're talking about health and they're talking about environment and having huge success right at, right at the start. Open doors. You know, schools are very um, receptive to this message. And it's a really telling thing that we can still achieve the same end goal, which is a more plant-based world, if not a total plant-based world, 
but we need to use some, when we use other messages, people are more ready to listen to us. I would, you know, our name speaks always to who we are and we don't shy away from the fact that we're doing this for the animals, but sometimes other constituents need another reason to tell their constituents like a school. And while they believe in the compassionate side, they really need to lead with an environmental or health solution. And our Choose Veg site is really experimenting with that and finding a lot of success and really, you know, empowering people with food choices that are compassionate, but are also really their choice, their decision is influenced by an environmental or health reason. So if people go along to chooseveg.com, what kind of stuff can they find? They'll have diets, um, they'll have blogs, they'll have uh, ways that they can get involved in their own community. Uh, it's a really positive site that can really empower a person to make different food choices. It's very a very open um, and friendly site. You will not find any negative images of animals being tortured on this site. Amazing. Um, last few questions now. So with all the work that you do and, and what often feels like an unrelenting uh, tsunami of negativity out there, <laughs> how do we and how do you remain positive through all of this? How do you how do you keep your head above the water and not, you know, wake up feeling depressed and misanthropic? Well, you know, I get to wake up every day for my job and help farmed animals. That's pretty awesome. I, I feel really lucky that that's my job and I get to do that for my career. Uh, you know, I think that anybody who works in a world where that we wor work in being part of the solution and constantly staying on that side of things where I am improving the world rather than making it worse keeps me optimistic. I just, no matter how big or hard the solution is, every step is a step in the right direction. And I just feel proud and honored and optimistic about being part of that positive force rather than mm -hmm. a negative one mm -hmm. absolutely and uh coming to the end now last question so if you were on that uh, magical desert island you know the vegan island everyone says if you were stuck on an island with a pig okay <laughs> and, and i said to you you could take a book a music album and a vegan dish what would they be oh my gosh okay a book um Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll a vegan dish. Um, I just, I really love pesto. I just think I could never, ever <laughs> live without pesto. Um, and I, I have a really great recipe. So hopefully they'll have, you know, things like nutritional yeast flakes on this island. <laughs> I don't know. Um, an album. There's a, a, a pianist named Joep Beving that I love. Um, so I listen to a lot of classical music when I'm, um, when I'm writing and working, and I think I can't live without his piano. Um, a book. Um, I think if I was, would I be by myself or with others? It's just, oh, you just and the pig. You and the, me and the pig. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'd probably just want something very, uh, like a fantasy, like a Harry Potter or something mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what book, but something that would take my mind off of my, you know, take me to another world. Um, something like that yes fantastic good choice well Lega says thank you so much for joining us on plant-based news it's been a real pleasure oh it's my pleasure Robbie it was great to speak to you again I always enjoy it so much and thank you for all the work you're doing and we're really excited about the change the change and the, the shift in the in the world and and really excited and honored and privileged to be uh, working alongside you and be a part of it wonderful thank you so much 
Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the PBN Podcast. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. On next week's episode, we have the joyful Brian Turner. Brian is an eloquent and articulate young man who's a vegan bodybuilder, an acne advocate, and he helps people reverse and transform their acne using a plant-based diet. He's really passionate about the vegan movement and was an absolute pleasure to be around. I can't wait to share that episode with you. If you enjoyed enjoyed this week's episode, please like, comment, and share on whatever social media platform you're on. And please don't forget to rate us on iTunes and on SoundCloud. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you next week.